Are you curious about what it takes to build a group practice? Or maybe you're already a few practices in and you want to learn what you need to do to ensure your success. Make a point to join us in Fort Lauderdale on March 30th through April 1st for our pinnacle event called Scaling from Clinician to CEO. This event is built to bring you the in-depth educational resources to help you create success at this next phase of your journey. Click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the event itself and to see an overview of the agenda. We're limiting the event to 75 people and we expect it to sell out. So please register soon. We hope to see you in Fort Lauderdale on March 30th for Scaling from Clinician to CEO. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome to episode number 35 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And it's an episode we're calling Banking 101, What Not to Do. (laughs) Suffice to say, all of our clients are what we call doctor-founded and debt-funded, meaning they're all using bank funds to grow And there's a right way to use bank funds and there's a wrong way to use bank funds. And if you're gonna build and scale a group, you need to know the difference. Walker's gonna join me behind the microphone today. So buckle up, sit tight. We're gonna give you all the banking you care to know and digest. Get your pad and pen ready. It's sure to be a note-taking episode and brew another cup of that wonderful Mila coffee. We're off and running. Once again, welcome everybody to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am Perrin Desports and I'm your host. As I teased in the introduction, this is episode 35 and we're calling it Banking 101. Obviously, banking and the borrowing and lending relationship is critical to the growth and success of all of the clients we work with. And there's no better expert in that subject matter than my partner, DeWalker Sinha, who's joining me on the show today. DeWalker, you want to say hello to everybody? Uh, Yes. Happy New Year, everyone. And thanks for joining us in 2022. It's going to be a great year. We are really thrilled about some of the things we have going on at Polaris for 2022. And I'll I'll touch on some of those in the the show recap before we wrap things up today. But suffice to say, this, this banking topic is one that we get gosh, a ton of questions on. Uh, And as I teased in the introduction, there's a right way and a wrong way to try to scale your group practice using debt funds. As a as kind of a, a marker, if you will, DeWalker and I are firmly of the opinion that using bank funds uh, or debt funds to grow your group is the right funding mechanism for the target clients we work with. Everybody thinks that private equity is uh, the end-all be-all, and it's the finish line, and it's a, a, a modicum of success. And we don't necessarily look at things that way. It's a different funding mechanism at the appropriate point in time. But
but debt funds early in the early stages of these groups is by far and away the right instrument if for no other reason than the cost of them is so dirt cheap that being said there's a lot of problems with the way people engage with their banks uh, and the way they borrow money and some of the things that they don't really understand about lending relationships when it comes to subordinated debt and cross-collateralization. We're going to get into all of that in, in multiple episodes around this topic. But today, we're going to talk about fundamental relationships with your bank and how to approach it, because this is truly mission critical. So, DeWalker, you've spent a heck, the better part of your career uh, in this space. Um, and it, it's really where you got your start in the dental industry, working with a lot of um, single practices and small and emerging groups. And then later stage of your career, enterprise level groups that were still using debt funds to, to grow their business. Why don't we start with just a, a general um, approach to how so many dentists start with a, a borrowing relationship and kind of the context around that when they begin their career right out of dental school. Do you want to take it from the top on that? Uh, yes. Um, so I think, you know, and, and some, you know, majority of doctors coming out of dental school, you know, one year to five years out at some point are looking at doing their first de novo or their first acquisition. You know, they're looking at it uh, more on a transactional basis, just looking for a bank partner, um, and that's okay. They're just looking for a bank partner to providing the lending uh, structure, the lending capacity, uh, the best rate. These things are very important in your first practice. I mean, I think you're just trying to get to the finish line in your first first practice, get comfortable in your first practice, you know, get it to be successful. And and some of some doctors, as they go past the first practice within the first year to five years, depending on what their goal was uh, in their first in the first practice, they start to think beyond the first practice and say, okay, I want to get to practice number two, practice number three, practice number five. And uh, each practitioner has different vision, three to five year outlook after they, they uh, have some reasonable success in their first practice. And I think the natural progression for you know, all those uh, practitioners is, okay, maybe I'll just go back to the same part, uh, bank or I'll just stay with the same bank. And up to some reasonable amount, majority of banks will probably do your second practice very comfortably. Uh, and third, potentially, depending on your loan amount, that could be a million dollars in aggregate loans or $3 million in aggregate loans, depending on the institution. And traditionally, it's looked at it from a lens of rate and term. And I think as, as you, uh, which is a very commoditized process, um, and, and that's okay when you're doing it first. But as you start to go towards um, a lower metal market or metal market solution, um, you know, it, it ends up being more of a structure issue. Now, you know, bankers traditionally will talk about, uh, you know, being relationship oriented. Bankers will traditionally talk about, um, hey, we're with you for the journey. And I think all those things are okay to be said verbally, but I think there is, you know, I think as our audience members are going through the growth process, they need to validate that with that in a position in writing, uh, documented. Uh, and I think that's really the way to approach it. So, as, as you're expanding from, you know, practice number two or three and, and early on have been identified, you know, your, your goals are to be at three, five, 10 or 25 locations. I think starting to look at structure, starting to look at the uh, credit capacity of the institution is, is very important um, beyond just any verbal disclosures or verbal statements made. 
um, in that process. And I think that's that's going to be important for for people early in the process as they're going towards expansion beyond practice number one. Yeah. So so I think uh, you know banks um, by all of us as consumers, banks get you know sometimes painted with an unfair brush. Meaning that you mentioned the word commodity and and a commoditized look at things when it comes to rate and term, and I think that that's really accurate because you know all of us as consumers think of banks as kind of like interchangeable, right? I mean they're they're providing funds for us to do something, buy a car, buy a home, buy a practice, you know, and and we just want the lowest cost of funds, and we think that's the the answer. Um, and you touched on the fact that. It very well may be the answer if your intention is simply to have one practice or maybe two practices down the road. But you know, if if your intention is not to stop at two, if your intention is to build an empire, whether that's five locations, ten locations, twenty locations, however many locations, it, it's a different type of um, a lender that you're looking for to facilitate that type of growth. And, and the reason it's a different type of lender is that banks all have, you know, we call it a, a credit box. And that's, a, that's my oversimplification of the way banks make decisions to lend or not to lend. Um, so can you take just a couple of seconds and and let's dive into this aspect of, of a credit box and way, the way a bank looks at a borrower from a risk profile standpoint, because I know that the risk profile of a dentist that is borrowing money to buy his or her first practice and is going to be working in that practice four to five days a week as the primary economic engine, that's a pretty low credit risk. On the other hand, a dentist who is looking to, to borrow money to buy his or her fourth or fifth practice, and they're not going to be working in that fourth or fifth practice four to five days a week. Now, now they're an entrepreneur, and, and that's a different kind of a, a risk profile for the bank to underwrite. And, it, and it's a completely different aspect in terms of the, the borrowing relationship. So can you maybe take us behind the curtain, if you will, um, the way banks operate and make those types of decisions? Uh, sure. I think uh, in early on when you see a, a, a principal doctor clinically practicing in the practice at their one or three locations, um, you know, there's a significant focus on you know, how is the doctor going to expand to the next location and still run the practice um, and a significant focus on the continued performance on a clinical level of that doctor and how that's mitigated um, in, in, in the risk level. And so a lot of focus on existing cash flow positions, you know, debt to lever, debt to uh, uh, revenue uh, percentage, loan to revenue, as they may talk about. Um, you know, we focus a lot more on funded debt to EBITDA. There is a um, direct correlation to loan to revenue funded debt to EBITDA um, out there. For example, you know, Banks may say 50 to 75% of loan to revenue as far as a risk model. And that traditionally may assume a 20% EBITDA position in the business to 25% EBITDA in the position in the business, which ends up being around three to four times EBITDA in the, in the, in the business anyway. So I think there's, you know, those are some of the metrics that are used out there. Uh, but on a doctor that is practicing, 
a lot of emphasis on how is the current operations doing, how much is the doctor producing, um, things like that. As you start to scale yourself out, um, same leverage ratios are looked at on a on a macro level as far as okay, what does the exposure look like, what's the plan look like. But now the banks on a lower middle market level start focusing on okay, what does the infrastructure look like. Um, you know, we're at five locations, we're at 10 locations, doctors not practicing clinically, or he or she might be working one day a week at max. You know, what does that infrastructure look like as far as COO, CFO, CEO? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think the, the context around the leadership of the business is totally different. The context around the, the structure, the operating structure of the business is totally different. The, the growth strategy of the business is totally different. Understandably, these are these are different animals, right? I mean, these are different um, scenarios that the way a bank looks at um, a, a a solo borrower in in his or her pra- primary practice versus an entrepreneur who is operating across multiple practices, um, and and that's. You know, that's a that's a different type of a lending relationship. So, as we think about, you know, defining that relationship, um, I think there are two things to keep in mind, and and we probably want to just dig into these a little bit. Um, one is that it's important to be really clear with your your bank to to clarify your vision and your intention around what you want to build um, because they may or may not be in, in it to win it with you. Um, and it's important to understand that earlier on versus finding that out later down the road. The second thing is it's important to understand who makes decisions for the bank. Um, retail banks, rate and term lenders um, that are low cost of funds and are great for your first practice or your second practice, um, those types of, of lenders have a relationship person that is client facing. They're the the people that take you out for a steak dinner and play golf with you and and all that kind of fun stuff, right? But they don't make the lending decision. The credit officer of the bank makes the lending decision. And it's important to understand how the credit officer views you as a borrower and and how much further they're willing to go. And the reason that this is important, I kind of equate to you know, building a house. If you if you built a house as a single person and you built a, a two bedroom, one bath bungalow that met all of your needs and was everything you ever wanted, and then you got married, you might find that one bathroom is not great for a married couple to fight over. So that two bedroom, one bath bungalow was built pretty small, you know, if you decide to get married. And then if you're married and have kids, you know that you're going to need multiple bedrooms, multiple baths, a bonus room, all that other sort of stuff. So as you're thinking about building a house, you want to build it for the family that you're going to have. You know, you're trying to build it for the future. This is the same thing in terms of building a group, right? If you're going to borrow, if you're going to have a, a borrowing relationship with a bank, you want them to understand the house you're trying to build how big you think it's going to be, how, how quickly you think you're going to grow it, what's your pace of, of growth and acquisition, you know, what are the dynamics of the business in terms of revenue and, and EBITDA and debt load and all that kind of stuff. And you may find earlier on that it's, 
it, it's important to to be able to 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 get clarity from your lender that they are that that's not the game they want to be in, and that's quite all right. You would rather have one longer term borrowing relationship that's clearly defined with a lender that allows you to go the distance, so you don't have to change or take on subordinated debt along the way, because that is um, costly in terms of both time and dollars to a borrower. And this is this is a relationship, ideally, I think you'd like to be able to, to set it and forget it. So DeWalker, as we start talking about the right solutions for our typical clients, and, and you know, do you want to maybe compare and contrast a little bit around retail lenders or rate and term lenders versus lower middle market and middle market solutions and how to kind of think about that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you, you have three different pricing and cost structures. So in in traditional, conventional commercial banking, um, and I kind of loosely use this uh, uh, loan amount of 2 to $3 million, as I said earlier, it ends up being a, more of a commoditized process uh, where you might focus a lot more on rate. People start to focus on prepayment penalty, and we focus on prepayment penalties as we go upstream also. Uh, but you might, you know, see uh, different prepayment terms and you know, standard loan covenants. But as you start to go to lower middle market, and lower middle market for us is really going to stay in for around three million dollars in the lower end check size. Um, uh, check size being the initial deployment size of the of the transaction, and getting to about 15, 20 million, that's going to be your lower middle market. Um, that's going to be looking for a guidance facility or credit facility. Uh, it's not a true line of credit. Uh, I think that's a common misconception. Like, uh, you know, we may look at home equity lines of credit and say, okay, you know, I have a house worth a million dollars. I owe 500000 You know, I have half a million dollars in equity I can draw upon. And that would assume you can draw 100% value of your, crack, uh, of your house. Um, and that may not be the situation because banks may only lend 80% or 90% value of your house, depending on the uh, product, product structure on, on, home, on home equity products. So, um, it's not a true line of credit, like a home equity line of credit <clears throat> or a business line of credit. A credit facility is essentially a, a bank's commitment to you under a certain set of preconditions that the following conditions are met um, and the following processes are followed that the bank will continue to lend to you on a, on a uh, forward-looking basis. Um, and that can come in the form of a committed line or an uncommitted line. Or the committed line, there's a different cost structure. Uh, depending on the institution, which means the bank's committed to those and has allocated those dollars to you up front. Uh, so there's internal mechanisms that the bank has to work through to provide that committed facility. In an uncommitted facility, they haven't allocated those dollars to you, but there's a credit structure that allows you to get there. So I think that becomes fairly you know, important to us as we look at lower medical market lending. And again, that's loosely for us around 3 million minimum check size, so about 20 million. Great, great. So, I think you know the the idea here for our audience um, is to understand you know the boxes that that those banks kind of operate in, and then to to take a step back and say, okay, what's what's my real growth strategy in the coming years? And depending on what that is, what the growth strategy is, and maybe the pace of it, more importantly how much in terms of debt funds am I really going to need at any one point in time? And if you're, you know, if your idea around growth is to buy or build 
one new location every four to five years, then probably you know retail lending, rate and term, lowest cost of funds will get you there. On the other hand, most of our clients are you know, buying or building two to three locations a year. And, and if, if that's the case, I can guarantee you that they're going to run out of rope um, with their existing, uh, with, their, with their initial lender, and they're going to need a solution that allows them for that guidance line, that credit facility uh, that can take them the distance. If done correctly, this type of a, a borrowing solution, this type of a relationship with a lower middle market and middle market bank is is their last stop probably before private equity. Is is that a safe assessment, you think? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that that's a, a good way to look at it. But, you know, as we, you know, we're starting to see more and more clients come to us that are more in the middle market space. So we've been, you know, doing more transactions in the space that are, you know, doctor owned or, you know, small family you know, uh, offices that might be looking for transactions from $20 million to $100 million or $150 million. So I think as people go up the stream, they start to evaluate is an equity platform the right structure? And there's definitely significant arguments to be made where it is. Um, and I think on our side, you know, because we do provide multiple solutions to the people that are engaging Polaris, we're able to evaluate is a capital structure the right structure in the form of equity? Or is a capital structure looking for more in the form of, of uh, uh, debt or senior debt? Um, and senior debt can come in the form of small minority equity positions. I, I don't think people talk about minority equity out there, uh, but but I think you know, and also senior debt lending. So I think as we as as people go past the twenty million dollar check size, they can look at equity as a potential way to deleverage themselves and find a bigger partner. Again, significant arguments to be made on why and how that could be a significant rate of return. Uh, but some 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 of our audience members may be at you know 30, 40 locations, you know 20 to 25 million dollars in debt, and evaluating if that's the right solution, and bringing in a a true middle market lending institution for them to continue to be uh, you know growing and 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 seeing their vision through might be a good solution. So we, we are starting to see transactions around 50 to 75 million dollars in the market. Yeah, I, I think it's a a new day in, in the market relative to that. And I think one of the key takeaways from our target audience here is that, you know, we're, and in the next episode, we're going to talk about cross collateralization and uh, subordinated debt and a lot of other, you know, working with multiple banks and all this kind of jazz um, that it really gets people into a lot of uh, problems. But suffice to say, I think too many people end up building multi-location groups that let's say they get to 10 locations or something like that, you know, eight to 15 locations maybe. And, and they've, they've got a, a, a convoluted cost of capital structure where they have different loans from different banks on different practices. And, and there's all, it's a mess basically, but what ends up happening is they, they can't get the next location funded. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but they they incorrectly assume that they've run out of rope with banks and they have to, to find a private equity type of a partner. And, and you can make a really good case that selling the business, transacting the business to a private equity group at that stage is incredibly premature and it really does not create the financial return for the founder of the business due to all the breakup fees of the banks. 
And, and that's an unfortunate scenario to, to be in. I think if we communicate this well in over the coming weeks and months, hopefully people will start to understand that there are different debt-based solutions that, that can take somebody to 25 to 50 locations, 20 to 50 to 100 million in debt, whatever the number is, that, that really does not require the entrepreneur to evaluate private equity options prematurely. They can hold out longer and create greater returns with ultimate control of the business. And, and if thought through thoroughly, um, you know, that's, that's arguably the right way to play this type of a growth game. So I think this is a, an incredibly compelling topic at a, a really interesting time. And, and I think we've got a lot of subject matter to come that will hopefully be incredibly impactful uh, for our audience. DeWalker, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. And in the upcoming episodes, we've got a lot more to share. And I know our, our audience is going to value your input tremendously. Thanks for joining me today, though. Thank you. Bet, you bet. So let's, um, uh, I, obviously, we hope that you found that to be informational and, and maybe recast the way that you're thinking about your current lending relationships. If you've got questions, um, uh, be they about your banking relationships or any type of insight into that, um, feel free to submit them to me directly. You can reach me always at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Or if there are any other questions about the show or subject matter for that matter, uh, go ahead and uh, send them my way. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Well, once again, thanks uh, to my partner, DeWalker Sinha, for joining me on the show today. He is a wealth of information all the time, but particularly when it comes to banking, uh, banking relationships, lending, and and like I say, he's a um, an ace in the hole for us when it comes to that, and and for our clients, candidly, because everybody we work with is using bank funds to grow, and if you do it correctly, um, you you ought to be able to set it, forget it, and be able to move forward with it. So. Um, thanks to Dwalker and all of his uh, insights and and certainly his experience that he shares. He's going to be on a lot of upcoming shows relative to this banking topic. And, and suffice to say, there's a lot more to come from him in that department. So before we wrap up today, um, I've gotten a couple of questions uh, around our mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations uh, masterclass that's coming up uh, February 17th and 18th here in Charlotte. And um, a lot of people basically asking the question now, what is it again? You know, I, I, I'm, I think I teased this out a couple of times, but let me see if I can be a little bit clearer in terms of what this format is and what it's intended to do. Um, as I mentioned before, all of our clients uh, and, and our audience really are all doctor founded and debt funded groups. And most of them are growing through acquisition. We've got a couple that do de novo, but the vast majority are acquiring other practices. And all too often, their opportunities for acquisitions um, are ones are practices that are listed by brokers, um, and that frankly, once they're listed by a broker, it's a competitive bidding scenario. That's not a great um, position to find yourself in. Suffice to say, it is not the way enterprise level groups 
rely on acquiring practices. So we're trying to bring some of the industry best practices at an enterprise level, at least, down to the emerging market space that is our target audience. And there is a, a way, there, there should be multiple ways to acquire practices if you're going to use that as your growth strategy. Certainly, you can acquire practices that are listed by a broker. And if the seller transitions off into the sunset and you buy 100% of that practice, uh, that's great. But there's a, a, an untapped segment of the market that might not be ready to sell and walk away. And you need to have a solution for that segment of the market, or you need to have multiple solutions. Think about this as tools in your toolbox. If you're a, if you're a dentist, um, even if you're a specialist, you don't just do one procedure all day long, every day. Not, not even an endodontist does that. There are multiple different types of root canals and complexity and everything like that. But suffice to say, you've got different um, instruments um, and, and hand pieces and the like to help you achieve whatever outcome it is that you've diagnosed and communicated to the patient, and you use the right tool for the right job. And acquisitions are the same thing. You need to have multiple tools in your toolbox. So it could be that you're going to acquire a practice outright, the seller's going to transition and be gone, and you need to replace them with an associate. That's one thing. It could be that this seller doesn't want to retire. They, they want to um, take some chips off the table, and they want to roll equity into your business and go along for the ride to, to build a bigger business um, with you at the helm of it. So you need to have an acquisition uh, methodology that supports an equity role into your business. And if they are going to roll equity and become a minority partner, there are different levels of equity. Is it practice level? Is it DSO level? Is it sub DSO? There are a lot of different ramifications, combinations and permutations, as they say, um, about that type of a scenario. An affiliation is a completely different type of an acquisition strategy and has a unique um, uh, seller type of a context involved, but you need to understand that because it could be the right tool in the toolbox for somebody who has a really successful practice, but they've taken it as far as they can go and you could get more out of it than they can on their own. And then obviously, if you're looking to um, acquire or merge with a smaller group, be it specialty or otherwise in a new geography, a merger type of a scenario is something that you need to understand. You're probably not going to use that one too terribly often, maybe only once in your career for that matter, but having the context around how to approach it is really important. So those are the different tools in the toolbox. But even before we get to, to deploying the tool, you've got to be able to diagnose the, the, the cause of the issue and then offer some treatment plan, if you will, in terms of how you can bring about a solution for that patient. And growing through acquisition is no different. You need to understand how to build a target acquisition profile so that you know the type of, of acquisition you're potentially dealing with. You need to have a fundamental way of building a pipeline of potential uh, practices to acquire that is not dependent upon um, local brokers in the community. Uh, and that pipeline might play out over a longer period of time, multiple years. So this is not a one and done type of an approach. And then if you do get somebody to, to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you, what are you going to talk with them about? 
how are you going to break the ice and and how how what's your pitch going to be and and we help you go through that building of a target acquisition profile to building a pipeline to tailoring your pitch as kind of the precursor to the solution or using the tool in the toolbox to create that solution there's obviously a lot of legal um context around all of this in terms of not just equity structure but transaction structure and 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 everything due diligence and all that goes along with it so everything i just described is the way an enterprise level group goes about their growth strategy and none of it is unique to them you can do it all too if you give yourself enough time and if you have enough understanding and if you don't rely on the trial and error method candidly to to produce that result so we built a class called mergers acquisitions and affiliations that goes through everything that i just listed in detail over about 2 days there's a lot of interaction involved it's powerpoint based understandably but there are there are a ton of handouts uh that we give to you and we work collaboratively to help build some of those um key components so that you feel more confident when you get back home that you could start to deploy this in 2022 and live with it for a number of years to be able to wash rinse repeat and hopefully create some level of success for you and and the business that you have under tow so these master classes are are a deep dive into a narrow subject matter with our expertise and potentially some industry expertise that we bring into the room with us and due to the intense nature of it we want classes to be limited to about no more than i'd say 10 attendees to keep it highly interactive and and keep it uh, deeply personal in in nature so if this is something that you're interested in really upping your game developing new tools in the toolbox and really understanding how to how to play the game of acquisitions at a higher level i think this would be um an ideal solution at a perfect point in time obviously february 17th and 18th is um not too far away and it's not too far into the new calendar year so you can um develop these tools and apply them you know certainly um by the uh start of quarter 2 or shortly thereafter um and really reap the benefits of it if if 2022 is going to be a year that you hopefully bring a lot of practices under uh under your umbrella so i encourage you to join us um we'll link to it in the show notes and and obviously if you got further questions about it feel free to hit me back um be happy to answer any of those uh on the air or in an upcoming episode and on another note i got a uh, a a really nice compliment um on a recent podcast from a guy named Brian Bunch who's a former ceo of a very large group here in the north carolina market as as a matter of fact i mean this is a guy that's really helped build and scale uh, uh i think it's probably about a 50 location group if memory serves me correct so i'm um, seeing a lot of success in his years in the in the market and he said uh, i just completed listening to your latest podcast on the six key steps to starting a group practice excellent job your steps were on point concise clearly explained and logical and i'm sure others who listen will find um their investment in time completely worthwhile thank thanks so much brian coming from you that's a heady compliment and not one to be taken lightly um based on a guy like that who's uh really walked the talk for uh for a while so i always appreciate getting good feedback from our audience i never know who exactly is out there and and the roles that they play and the experience they've had but suffice to say when you get a 
an in industry veteran than an insider like that to give you a compliment. Um, it lands really well and it, it keeps us going. So thank you very much, um, Brian, for, for your kind words. It's genuinely appreciated by myself, to Walker, and our entire team here. Well, I hope the rest of you in the audience uh, got a lot out of today's episode. If you did, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, or, or share any nice compliments just like Brian did. And if you've got questions, uh, feel free to submit them directly to me at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Maybe I'll read and answer them on an upcoming episode. And of course, if you want to find out more about us, you can hit our website at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber, and we'll see you on the next episode.